Hello and welcome back to Off the Deaton Path. I'm Stan Deaton with the Georgia Historical Society and we welcome you to this podcast for March 18, 2021. We are broadcasting this week from the Beyond the Grave department here at the Georgia Historical Society on the 15th floor of the Jepson House overlooking beautiful Forsyth Park in downtown Savannah. We'll be talking about Harry Houdini and his attempts to communicate from the great beyond in just a moment. We'll also take a look at what's new on the Off the Deaton Path bookshelf this week. But before we get to that, however, let's begin with a look at the ever-popular This Week in History. On March 18, 1766, 255 years ago, the Stamp Act was repealed by Parliament. The Stamp Act was the first British parliamentary attempt to raise revenue through direct taxation of all colonial, commercial, and legal papers, newspapers, pamphlets, cards, almanacs, and dice. British victory over the French in the Seven Years' War, or the French and Indian War as it was known in America, added to the enormous British defense debt. The British Chancellor of the Exchequer, Sir George Grenville, hoped to meet at least half of these costs by the combined revenues of the Sugar Act passed in 1764 and the Stamp Act, which was passed on March 22, 1765, and was set to take effect on November 1st. Word reached across the Atlantic, and set off a firestorm. To say that the act was enormously unpopular would be an understatement. The American colonies considered any tax not passed by their own colonial legislatures to be an illegal assault on their rights as British citizens. It set off a series of protests in what would later become known as direct action when colonists took to the streets to protest the act, destroying the homes of royal officials, harassing and intimidating stamp agents, and effectively nullifying the act by refusing to buy the hated stamps. Protest groups known as the Sons of Liberty were formed in many of the colonies, and an extra-legal body representing nine of the 13 colonies met at what became known as the Stamp Act Congress in New York in October 1765. Delegates there agreed to a non-importation of British goods, and they petitioned the king and parliament for repeal, both of which were rejected. The Stamp Act Congress, by the way, was the first intercolonial congress to meet in America. Parliament finally bowed to pressure from British merchants and manufacturers whose colonial exports had been shut down, and largely against the wishes of the House of Lords, repealed the act on March 18, 1766. The protest throughout the colonies against the Stamp Act is now considered by historians to be the opening volley of what became the American Revolution and a struggle for independence a decade later. Georgia, by the way, because of the firm leadership of Governor James Wright, was the only colony that officially used the dreaded stamps, earning disdain among her sister colonies. On March 19, 1806, 215 years ago, James Jackson, congressman, U.S. senator, and the 23rd governor of Georgia, died in Washington, D.C. at age 48. James Jackson had been born in England in 1757 and came to Savannah at age 15. He fought for the American side during the Revolution, serving in the 1st Brigade Georgia Militia at the defense of Savannah, the Battle of Cowpens, and the recapture of both Augusta and Savannah. When the British evacuated the city in July 1782, General Anthony Wayne gave Jackson the privilege of leading the American army into the city. Jackson was elected to the Georgia legislature in the 1780s and then to the first federal Congress, where he became an early opponent of Federalist Alexander Hamilton's financial plan and therefore one of the first Jeffersonian Republicans. 
1795, Georgia passed the Yazoo Land Act, selling 35 million acres of western land, most of present-day Alabama and Mississippi, to four land companies for a half a million dollars, about one and a half cents an acre, far below its value. Opponents cried foul. Many legislators owned shares in those land companies, and critics charged corruption. The loudest critic was now U.S. Senator James Jackson. A man whose career had been studded with duels and street brawls, Jackson resigned his Senate seat to return to Georgia and led the successful effort to repeal the Yazoo land sale in the state legislature. For his efforts, he was elected governor and then again to the U.S. Senate. It was James Jackson who was largely responsible for Georgia becoming a staunch supporter of Jefferson's Democratic-Republican Party, which dominated the state for the next generation. James Jackson died while serving in Washington in the U.S. Senate and is buried in the Congressional Cemetery there. On March 20, 1957, 64 years ago, Shelton Jackson Lee was born in Atlanta, and as Spike Lee, he would go on to become one of this country's most important, innovative, and uncompromising filmmakers. The son of jazz composer Bill Lee, Spike Lee grew up in Brooklyn before returning to Atlanta to attend Morehouse College, where he majored in communication and directed his first Super 8 film. He attended New York University's Graduate Film School, where his master's thesis, a short film entitled Joe's Bedsty Barbershop, We Cut Heads, gained national attention and earned him the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Student Award. Lee's work has continually explored race relations in America. His first feature-length film, She's Gotta Have It, debuted in 1986 and followed a career-long pattern with Lee serving as writer, producer, director, editor, and sometimes actor in his films. Lee's production company, 40 Acres and a Mule Filmworks, has produced more than 35 films since 1983, including Do the Right Thing in 1989, Mo' Better Blues in 1990, Jungle Fever, Malcolm X in 1992, Inside Man in 2006, and 2018's Black Klansman, for which he finally received an Oscar, this one for Best Adapted Screenplay. In 1993, Spike Lee began to teach at New York University's Tisch School of the Arts in the graduate film program, and he is now a tenured professor at NYU. On March 21, 1856, 165 years ago, Henry Ossian Flipper was born enslaved in Thomasville, Georgia. In 1877, Flipper would go on to become the first African American to graduate from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. After the Civil War, Flipper was educated by the American Missionary Association and attended Atlanta University, later Clark Atlanta University, for one year. In 1873, he became the fifth African American to receive a West Point appointment, and he attended with a class of, to put it mildly, hostile white cadets. Unlike other African American cadets, however, Flipper managed to tolerate the hostile environment, and he graduated and received his commission in 1877. He described his experiences in his 1878 book entitled The Colored Cadet at West Point. After graduation, Flipper joined the famed Buffalo Soldiers, the 10th Cavalry Regiment. As an officer in the 10th Cavalry, Flipper served at Forts Elliott, Concho, Quitman, Sill, and Davis, and he fought twice at Eagle Springs, Texas during the Victorio Campaign against the Apache Indians in 1880. At Fort Davis in Texas, 
Flipper's commanding officer accused him of embezzlement. He was acquitted at his court-martial, but convicted in 1881 of conduct unbecoming an officer and dismissed from the army. Flipper worked all of his life to clear his name, insisting he was court-martialed because of racism. As a civilian, Flipper distinguished himself in numerous fields. He worked as engineer, surveyed land, and worked as a special agent for the U.S. government on southwestern land claims. Fluent in Spanish, he translated texts on Mexican tax, mining, and land laws. He worked in Mexico from 1901 to 1912 as a mining engineer. Flipper supplied information on internal Mexican affairs to the U.S. Senate during the Mexican Revolution. In 1916, he wrote his memoirs, which were first published posthumously in 1963 under the title Negro Frontiersman, the Western Memoirs of Henry O. Flipper. In 1923, after briefly serving as Assistant Secretary of the Interior, he took an engineering position with a petroleum company in Venezuela. He retired in 1931 and returned to Atlanta to live with his brother. Flipper died of a heart attack on May 3, 1940, at age 84. After his death, his family continued the fight to clear his name. In 1976, the Army overturned his court-martial and granted him an honorable discharge. And in 1999, 118 years after his conviction, President Bill Clinton granted Flipper a full pardon. West Point now gives the Henry O. Flipper Award to the graduating senior who has displayed, quote, the highest qualities of leadership, self-discipline, and perseverance in the face of unusual difficulties while a cadet, unquote. The first black graduate of West Point, born enslaved in Georgia, was first buried in the family plot in Atlanta's Southview Cemetery, but in February 1978, Henry Flipper's body was exhumed and reburied in Flipper Cemetery in his hometown, of Thomasville. On March 22, 1934, 87 years ago, the first Masters Tournament was held in Augusta, Georgia. The Masters is one of the four major championships in professional golf. Scheduled for the first week of April, the first full week of April, I should say, the Masters is the first major of the year, and unlike the others, it is always held at the same location, Augusta National Golf Club. After golfer Bobby Jones retired, he and businessman Clifford Roberts developed this national landmark. Jones and noted golf course architect Alistair McKenzie designed the course on an abandoned 365-acre nursery called Fruitlands that had once been an indigo plantation. Roberts and Jones wanted a major tournament at Augusta National and decided on the springtime when the flowers were in bloom and no other major tournament competed. They decided to stage an annual event hosted by Jones, who would come out of retirement once a year to play at what was first called the Augusta National Golf Club Invitation Tournament. Horton Smith won the first year. It officially became the Masters in 1939. The Green Jacket Ceremony began in 1949. Jack Nicklaus has won the most Masters wins, with six between 1963 and 1986. And in case you're wondering, Tiger Woods has the first African-American to play in the Masters was Lee Elder in 1975, 15 years before Augusta National admitted its first black member. The club admitted its first two women members, Condoleezza Rice and Darla Moore, in 2012. This year's Masters will be held April 5th through April 11th. 
On March 23, 1734, 287 years ago, a group of Georgia's Yamacraw Indians set sail for England with General James Oglethorpe. Just one year after Oglethorpe founded the British colony, he returned to London to report to the trustees and took a group of Georgia's Yamacraw Indians with him. Led by Chief Tomachichi, they wanted to make requests for education and fair trade directly to the king and to the trustees. Tomachichi traveled as both negotiator and diplomat, determined to protect his people from abuse, but he also wanted to assure the British of his concern for Georgia's welfare. The natives spent a successful six months in England, becoming celebrities in London, visiting with the trustees, and posing for portraits. Their big moment came when they met with King George II and Queen Caroline. One of the natives died of smallpox and was buried at St. John the Evangelist Church. He lies there still, the last tangible relic of a remarkable meeting between the old world and the new. And finally, on March 24, 1874, 147 years ago, Eric Weiss was born in Budapest, and as Harry Houdini, he would become one of the most famous and influential magicians in history. Weiss was the son of a rabbi who immigrated from Hungary to the United States and settled in Appleton, Wisconsin. Eric Weiss became a trapeze performer in circuses at an early age, and after settling in New York City in 1882, he performed in vaudeville shows there without much success. Taking his stage name from the famous French magician Robert Houdin, after reading Houdin's autobiography in 1890, Houdini, from about 1900, began to earn an international reputation for his daring feats of escaping from shackles, ropes, and handcuffs, and from various locked containers, ranging from milk cans to coffins to prison cells. In a typical act, he was shackled with chains and placed in a box that was locked, roped, and weighted. The box was submerged in water from a boat to which he returned after freeing himself underwater. In another outdoor exhibition, Houdini allowed himself to be suspended head down about 75 feet above ground and then freed himself from a straitjacket. Houdini introduced the Chinese water torture cell in Berlin in 1912. He was suspended upside down in a locked glass and steel cabinet full to overflowing with water, holding his breath for more than three minutes. He would go on performing this escape for the rest of his life. These demonstrations were typically watched by many thousands of people, and he became world famous. Houdini's uncanny escape abilities depended partly on his great physical strength and agility and partly on his extraordinary skill at manipulating and picking locks. For many years, he was the highest-paid performer in American vaudeville. One of Houdini's most notable non-escape stage illusions was performed at the New York Hippodrome when he made a full-grown elephant vanish from the stage. Incidentally, Houdini wrote the article on Conjuring for the 13th edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, published in 1926. You can still read it. Houdini died of peritonitis, secondary to a ruptured appendix, fittingly, on Halloween, October 31, 1926, at age 52 in Detroit. He is buried in the Machpella Cemetery in Ridgewood, New York. To this day, the Society of American Magicians holds a broken wand ceremony at the grave every November. Now, Houdini spent much of his later years debunking spiritualists who claimed to be able to communicate with the dead. Before Houdini died, he and his wife, Bess, agreed that if Houdini found it possible to communicate after death, he would communicate the message, Rosabelle Believe, a secret code which they agreed to use. 
Roosevelt was their favorite song. His wife, Bess, held yearly seances on Halloween for 10 years after Houdini's death. In 1936, after a last unsuccessful seance on the roof of the Knickerbocker Hotel, she put out the candle that she had kept burning beside a photograph of Houdini since his death. In 1943, Bess Houdini said, quote, 10 years is long enough to wait for any man, unquote. And that's this week in history. deaths of note this week. First, historian Walter Lefebvre died on March 8, 2021. Lefebvre was an historian of American diplomacy and published a number of books on the subject, including the classic America, Russia, and the Cold War, the latest edition of which was published in 2006. Lefebvre studied under the legendary William Appleman Williams at Wisconsin and he himself taught for many years at Cornell University and had a tremendous impact on the diplomatic community as many of his students went on to careers in diplomacy and in the academy. His students included foreign policy experts Samuel Berger, who served as national security advisor under President Bill Clinton, Stephen Hadley, who held the same position under George W. Bush, Eric Edelman, who was undersecretary of defense for policy in the Bush administration, William Brownfield, who served as Assistant Secretary of State under President Obama, and Professor Nancy F. Cott, a historian at Harvard. Walter Lefebvre was 87 years old. Actor Yafet Kato died on March 15, 2021. Kato appeared in dozens of movies and TV shows over the years, including Alien, Midnight Run, and the 1973 James Bond film Live and Let Die. He won an Emmy in 1978 for his portrayal of President Idi Amin, the murderous Ugandan strongman, in the 1976 television movie Raid on Entebbe. But his best work was as the larger-than-life Sicilian Lieutenant Al Giardello on the groundbreaking show Homicide, Life on the Streets, produced by Tom Simon and Barry Levinson, which appeared on NBC for seven years between 1992 and 1999. As Cotto said in an interview in 1993, quote, I want to try to play a much more sensitive man, a family man. There is an aspect of black people's lives that is not running or jumping, unquote. Cotto was part of a brilliant ensemble cast that included Andre Brower, Ned Beatty, Melissa Leo, and Richard Belzer. The show created 122 episodes, one of the best television dramas ever created. It was the first drama ever to win three Peabody Awards for drama in 1993, 95, and 97. If you've not seen it, do yourself a favor and stream it and watch the work of Yafet Kato and the rest of the cast as they make murder look like magic. Yafet Kato was 81. Finally, a death that went unnoticed on this podcast when it happened last summer in the midst of the pandemic. Historian Bernard Balin died on August 7, 2020. 
Balin was the dean of historians of early America and the Atlantic world, and his influence on the profession cannot be overstated. He mentored some of the most storied names in the field of early American history over the last 50 years, including Gordon Wood, Mary Beth Norton, Michael Kamen, Jack Raycove, Fred Anderson, Richard Bushman, Michael Zuckerman, Peter Wood, James Henretta, and Pauline Meyer. Balin himself studied at Harvard under Perry Miller, Samuel Elliott Morrison, and Oscar Handlin. He taught at Harvard for 40 years, from 1953 to 1993. He is one of five people to win the Pulitzer Prize in history twice, first in 1968 for his book The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution, and in 1987 for Voyagers to the West, a passage in the peopling of America on the eve of the revolution. In 2010, he was awarded the National Humanities Medal by President Obama. Balin's work broke new ground in political and intellectual history and later in social and demographic history. I was introduced to the work of Bernard Balin in Fennessy Spalding's seminar on colonial American history at the University of Georgia in the fall of 1986 when he assigned us to read Balin's 1968 classic, The Origins of American Politics. Somehow through the years, I managed to accumulate a small library of Balin's books without even realizing it. After his death, I counted 11 of his books on my shelves, from his very first one entitled The New England Merchants in the 17th Century, published in 1955, to his last, Sometimes an Art, Nine Essays on History, published 60 years later in 2015. Bernard Balin, one of the most influential and important historians of the 20th century, was 97 years old. And now on to the Off the Deaton Path bookshelf. There are several books that have recently been published or are about to be published that I want to tell you about in many different fields and genres of history. I'm interested in them, and you might be too. As you know, over the last several years, Confederate monuments and Confederate iconography in American society has been an ongoing issue of concern. One of the leading scholars who has weighed in on the subject is Karen Cox, a professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. She's published editorials in many national publications, and on April 12th, she has a new book coming out entitled No Common Ground. Confederate Monuments and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice, published by the University of North Carolina Press. This book is going to get a lot of well-deserved attention and generate a lot of discussion. It will be a no-holds-barred examination of the history of Confederate monuments, what they meant to the people who erected them, and what their continued presence means today for all of us. Check it out. Out April 12th, Karen Cox's new book entitled No Common Ground, Confederate Monuments and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice, published by the University of North Carolina Press. On this same subject, in January, St. Martin's Press published a new book by Ty Sijul, a retired professor of history at West Point entitled Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. Sigel is a retired United States Army Brigadier General, the former head of the History Department at the United States Military Academy, the first Professor Emeritus of History at West Point, and the inaugural Joshua Chamberlain Fellow at Hamilton College. In February 2021, just last month, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin 
appointed him as one of four representatives of the U.S. Department of Defense to the Commission on the Naming of Items of the Department of Defense that Commemorate the Confederate States of America, or any person who served voluntarily with the Confederate States of America, including U.S. Army installations named for Confederate soldiers. Sigel brings a rather unique perspective to his work. He served in the United States Army for more than 35 years, starting as a tank platoon leader in Germany. His commands include a cavalry unit in the 82nd Airborne Division during the Gulf War, as well as 3rd Battalion, 81st Armor Regiment. His staff positions included crisis planning for NATO in Kosovo and North Macedonia. But he grew up in Georgia, revering Robert E. Lee, graduated from Washington and Lee University, Now he thinks it's time for a reckoning. This book is part history, uh, part history lecture, I should say, part meditation on the Civil War and its fallout, and part memoir that challenges the deeply held legends and myths of the Confederacy. It is a deeply thoughtful contribution to the ongoing discussion about Confederate iconography in contemporary American society. Again, Ty Sidejewel's book is called Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning, with the Myth of the Lost Cause, published by St. Martin's Press in January. Stepping back from the Confederacy, but still in the same time period, is a new book out this month by Bruce Levine, a retired professor of history at the University of Illinois. His new biography of radical Republican Thaddeus Stevens has just been published this month by Simon & Schuster. It's entitled Thaddeus Stevens, Civil War Revolutionary, Fighter for Racial Justice. The book is being touted as the definitive biography of one of the 19th century's greatest and most radical statesmen, encompassing his decades-long fight against slavery, his key role in the U.S. war effort during the Civil War, and his post-war struggle to bring racial justice to America. It's been a while since we've had a good biography of this important leader, so you may want to check out this book about an early leader in the fight for black freedom. It's Bruce Levine. The book is entitled Thaddeus Stevens, Civil War Revolutionary, Fighter for Racial Justice, published this month by Simon & Schuster. The historical figure from the 19th century who was the antithesis of Thaddeus Stevens is John C. Calhoun. The South Carolinian served in the U.S. House, in the Senate, and as Andrew Jackson's vice president, but he is perhaps best known for arguing in favor of slavery as a positive good, and form his famous doctrine of state interposition and nullification that laid the groundwork for secession. He is among, and I don't think it's any overstatement to say this, he is among the most notorious and enigmatic figures in American history. And there's a new biography out about him entitled Calhoun, American Heretic, published last month by Basic Books, written by Robert Elder, an assistant professor of history at Baylor University who, by the way, received his Ph.D. in history from Emory University. Calhoun has catapulted back into the public eye in recent years, uh, as some observers connected the strain of radical politics he developed to the tactics and extremism of the modern far right, and as protests over racial injustice have focused on Calhoun's legacy. Elder argues that Calhoun is even more broadly significant than these events suggest, and that his story is crucial for understanding the political climate in which we find ourselves today. As you probably know, Calhoun's statue has recently come down in Charleston, where he's buried, and Calhoun Square in Savannah, 
may be renamed. Any historian honestly re-examining John C. Calhoun right now is deserving of attention, and I'll be checking this book out. Again, Robert Elder is the author, E-L-D-E-R. The book is entitled Calhoun, American Heretic, published in February by Basic Books. Finally, another on my list of books I'll be checking out is a re-examination of the Enlightenment, that fascinating period of history in the late 17th and 18th centuries that was one of the formative periods of European and world history, the fountainhead of modern secular Western values of religious tolerance, freedom of thought, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, of the age of reason, and evidence-based argument. Richie Robertson is a professor of German at Oxford University, a fellow of the British Academy, and a lead reviewer for the Times Literary Supplement. And he has written a re-examination of the period that is just out from Harper. It is entitled, The Enlightenment, The Pursuit of Happiness, 1680-1790. to Robertson argues that, above all, the Enlightenment was really about increasing human happiness in this world rather than the next by promoting scientific inquiry and reasoned argument. It is a doorstop of a book coming in at over a thousand pages, but he covers all the major figures of the period like Voltaire and Diderot, so I'll be digging into it for sure. The book, again, is written by Richie Robertson. It's entitled The Enlightenment, The Pursuit of Happiness, 1680 to 1790, published by Harper. It's out now. And that's this week's look at the Off the Deaton Path bookshelf. I hope you're reading something good, too. Drop me a line and let me know. Finally, the opening day of the Major League Baseball season is in just a couple of weeks, Thursday, April 1st, and the Braves open up that afternoon against the Philadelphia Phillies on the road. Major League Baseball is planning to play a full season this year, and I'm all for that. Whoever your team is, I wish them success. And I'm ready for two of the sweetest words in the English language. Play ball. The hardest working engineer in show business, the czar of our Tallahassee office, as well as the captain of the GHS underwater cycling team, is our very own Brendan Cannonball Krellen. Our GHS director of media manipulation and free elections is Patty Press Release Maher. The GHS Playground Director, Staff Archaeologist, and Fearless Food Taster is Elise, are you going to eat that, Butler. Our GHS Coordinator of Classroom Indoctrination is Lisa War Eagle Landers. The GHS Maven of Social Media and Library Science is Sabrina, Human Search Engine Saturday. Our GHS Efficiency Expert and Controller of German Names is Karen Bodenschatz-Zollner. The director of the GHS Russian Literature Division is Christy Maple Crisp, assisted by our writing intern, Warren Pease. Our Off the Eaton Path fact checker is Ella Fino. Our GHS bungee jumping instructor is Hugo First. Our GHS IT specialist is C. Colin Backslash. Our Off the Eaton Path director of Three Stooges Studies is Lee Iapoka. Our staff vote counter is Emmanuel Recount, and our Off the Eaton Path martini mixer is Olive Twist. If you have an iPhone, you can find our podcast at the App Store or on the podcast app on your phone and on Spotify. If you have an Android, look for us at Google Play. You can find out everything about the Georgia Historical Society at georgiahistory.com. 
and the Georgia History Festival at georgiahistoryfestival.org. Be sure and like Off the Deaton Path on Facebook and Instagram as well. Please also visit deatonpath.georgiahistory.com and check out dispatches from Off the Deaton Path, my blog, and similarly from Beyond the Grave podcast like this one. Stay safe, stay strong. I'm Stan Deaton with the Georgia Historical Society. As always, thank you for listening.